What an awesome opportunity to be under the word of the Lord this morning. Uh, Before we turn our attention to God's word, let us uh, commit our time in prayer to him. Uh, Lord, as we come during this time of just hearing from your word, uh, Lord, we ask that uh, the distractions in our heart and mind would be pushed aside. Lord, that we would position ourselves in such a way that we would want to absorb every word that is spoken. Uh, Lord, not uh, just for our benefit, but ultimately for your glory. But in that, we do find uh, true blessings as we not only hear your word, but respond faithfully to your word. So Lord, we are anticipating and expecting amazing things through the study of your word this morning. Uh, So, Lord, be gracious to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 will be in verses 1 through 8 this morning. If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat uh, that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. I would encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 568. Uh, 568, we're going to begin a new teaching series this morning. Uh, walking through the book of Psalm 119, or chapter uh, 119 in Psalm. Uh, The series is entitled, His Word, My Anchor. His Word, My Anchor. And what's amazing about Psalm 119 is the the length of it. It's 176 verses. It's a lot of verses. Uh, In fact, if you compare this one chapter with all the books of the Bible, this one chapter has more words in it than more than 50% of the books in the Bible. So this one chapter is quite lengthy. Uh, Roughly 99% of all the verses that are in this particular chapter refer directly to the Word of God. So the Word of God is a very central aspect to this chapter. We'll see words like law, word, rules, testimonies, commandments, statutes, and precepts, and all of those refer to God's Word. This morning, as we look at the first eight verses of Psalm 119, this really is an introduction to where the entire chapter is going to be headed. And so there's going to be themes that we unpack over and over again throughout our time in Psalm 119. So let's read uh, those first eight verses. The scripture says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my eyes may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Now, when we get to Psalm 119, it's important for us to recognize that we don't know exactly who or when uh, this particular writing was done. Uh, It's possible that the author could have been David or Ezra or Hezekiah or even Daniel, to name a few. So we don't know exactly who, we don't know exactly when, but we do know why. Psalm 119, over and over again, communicates the beautiful, necessary relationship between God's word, God's people, and God's glory. That's what we're going to see all throughout this particular chapter. And the way that we're going to study this chapter together is we're going to honor 
the reading and writing of God's word and the way that it was written. There's 22 stanzas in Psalm 119. It's a poem. And uh, each stanza is composed of eight verses each. And here is the beauty of the scripture. We don't see it in our English translation, but you do see it in the Hebrew. Uh, In the Hebrew, the first letter of the alphabet, so there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The first one uh, is Aleph, and that's what we're going to see in these first eight verses. And so on the screen, you'll notice a few things about the Hebrew language. One, it's confusing. Uh, By the grace of God, I passed two semesters in Hebrew. Uh, The other thing you'll notice is uh, instead of reading left to right, you read right to left. So it's backwards, so that adds to it. Uh, The third thing is you have no idea what it's saying, right? I mean, none of us are going to pick up that and say, yeah, this is Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. But what you notice that's pretty amazing is not only is uh, each uh, Hebrew letter represented in uh, one of those uh, 22 paragraphs or stanzas, uh, if that paragraph starts with Aleph like it does in verses uh, 1 through 8, each, the first letter in each verse begins with that same letter. And so there is a beauty behind God's word. And so we'll look at that uh, all throughout our study. Uh, the first letter, Aleph, has to do with uh, something that is about uh, a master or a teacher or something that is wondrous. And guess what? God's word is wondrous. And the beauty of this particular uh, psalm, specifically these first eight verses, what we'll find is there's, there's three amazing shifts that happen in verses 1 through 8. We'll see a, a third-person perspective uh, in verses 1 through 3. We'll see a second-person uh, perspective in verse 4. And then we'll see a very personal perspective in verses 5 through 8. And so that's how we're going to study the passage this morning. And there's going to be three amazing observations that we see based on those perspectives. And the first one is this. Uh, obedience within the community of faith. That's the first thing that we see in these first three verses. That there is an obedience within the community of faith. Notice the first three verses again. The scripture says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. And so here's the reality. This author is sitting down and he is examining the people of God before him. And what he notices within that community of faith are people of God who are obedient to the word of God. He talks about, uh, he uses words like way and walk. All of this is to describe uh, their life. And I love the word way. Uh, The word way describes a a path that has been marked out. So the picture that I have in my mind is uh, back in the day, we we grew up with dogs uh, in our house growing up, and and they were always outside dogs, right? And and what would happen is the the outside dogs uh, had a way of creating a path in the backyard. They just would track it down back and forth, back and forth. And what would happen to the grass there? There would be no grass, right? And so this idea, this picture that I have in my mind is that God's people were so committed to the word of God in the way that they lived that you literally could see their path marked out. And the scripture talks about the law of the Lord. The law, uh, the word here is Torah, which specifically would refer to those first five books in the Old Testament. So Genesis to Deuteronomy. But generally speaking, it is all of God's word. And not only were these people, the people of God, given the law of God, the Torah, but the scripture says that they were also given testimonies. God's testimonies. What an amazing word. Think about a witness on the witness stand giving a what? A testimony. Guess what? There is no greater testimony 
than God himself, of his ways, his wills, and his very character. And everything that he says is 100% true. And that's what we see in this particular passage, those first three verses. And from the psalmist's perspective, God's people have taken God's law and his testimonies and they have made it their very way of life. It has become their walk. Step by step, day by day, they are committed to the word of God. The scripture says they have kept it. That means that they have uh, protected, watched, and guarded their very life based on the word of God that was before them. So much so that the scripture says that they are seeking the Lord with what? Their whole heart. The word seek here is in a uh, continuous language, meaning that the continuous habit of their life was to seek the Lord. How? With their whole heart. Every aspect of their inner being, every facet, was committed to the will of God. The scripture says that they were blameless and do no wrong. Now, it's important that we understand that a little bit. You know, sometimes we look at those words and we immediately failure, right? Listen, there's only one who is perfect, right? That is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Praise be to God for that. So when we think about these phrases of blameless and do no wrong, it's really talking about a habitual pattern of life. It's one of integrity. It's one that has wholeness and sincerity. And and their completeness comes from who? It comes from the word of the Lord. And so what we find in these first three verses is this great intentionality. As the author of Psalm 119 looks out into the community of faith, he sees a people of God who with great intentionality are seeking God's will for their life. They are desiring to obey the word of the Lord. And here's what's beautiful about the scripture. is not only do we see the intentionality of God's people like this in the Old Testament, But this is also communicated to those of us, the the church, those in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, writing to the churches in Ephesus, communicates this this great intentionality of obedience to God's word. In Ephesians 4.1, the scripture says, I, speaking of Paul, therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge. I mean, think about Paul. Paul is literally in prison at this time. And his heart, his desire, his passion is where? On the people of God. He's urging them. He's pleading with them. He's literally begging them to do what? That they would walk, that they would live in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. In other words, the gospel has done amazing things in your life. It has brought you from death to life, Ephesians 2. Let your life be a reflection of that great calling. And how does this life look? Well, he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, therefore, be imitators of God. And, and we lose a little bit of the, the beautiful emphasis here uh, in the Greek language. The word, uh, the, the verse doesn't start off with therefore. It starts off with be. Be, therefore, imitators of God. And how is it that we can be imitators of God? Because we are what? His beloved children. I mean, do you rest there? You are a beloved child of God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ by grace through faith. Therefore, how do we imitate God? The scripture says in verse 2 that we walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So there is a walk 
an imitation. The way that we reflect God in this life is that we walk in love, but not just walking in love. We, we walk in light. The scripture says in verses uh, 7 and 8, Therefore do not become partners with them. And who's the them? The people who live the old life, right? The people that, that live uh, in the world. The people that have no a desire to live for the Lord. He says, we don't need to uh, partner with them. We don't need to join in with what they're doing. He says, for what, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That's who we used to be. Our identity has changed. We are fundamentally new people in Christ. We are new creatures, new creations, right? Therefore, we have an opportunity to walk in light, but not only that, we can walk in wisdom. Verse, five, uh, verse 15 of chapter 5. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Because of the work of Christ in us, we can apply God's truth in the way that we live our life. Now listen, we need to understand that this imitating God, this is not for, first and foremost about your behavior, Right? It's first and foremost about your relationship with him. And it's out of that relationship what spills over the very characteristics of God. That is a key component of the Christian life. It's not first and foremost go do. It's first and foremost realize who you are. You are a child of God. And it's out of that relationship that obedience begins to flow out of. And when we see in Psalm 119, we see the psalmist observing the community of faith and their love for God and his word, and the way that they obey the word of the Lord, and he sees a people that are truly, truly blessed. And what is the blessing that he picks out in this passage? The joy of obedience. The joy of obedience. Obedience to the word of God brings about tremendous joy. We see this twice in verses 1 through 3. The scripture says, uh, blessed are those... The word blessed means, oh, how happy, or oh, how joyful. And it's repetitive. It's repeated twice in, in two verses because the, the author wants us to be just uh, enamored and enthralled with the joy that only comes from the Lord. And the reality is that joy is connected to two important things. Love of God and love of His ways, right? Obeying what He says. In fact, when you look at uh, the scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, the scripture says it like this. It says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? In other words, what does God desire for you? But to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today. Why? For your good. You know, at the end of the day, if we want to really determine if we're going to obey God's word as his children, it boils down to what? Trust. Do I really trust that God's way and God's will is not only good, but it is best. At the end of the day, that's the challenge. Do we truly believe that it is good, that it is best? And when we rightly understand who we are because of the work of Christ, we will always be, always be assured that it is good and it is best. Deuteronomy 33, 29 says it like this, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. 
Listen, there is no greater gift than being gifted with an amazing relationship with our creator. No greater gift. Not one that we deserve, not one that we earn, not one that we can secure on our own, purely by the finished work of Christ, by grace through faith, but we get to enjoy that relationship. And through that obedience, the the psalmist looking at the community of faith sees a people of God who are full of tremendous joy. And that begs the question, where are you looking for joy today? As the people of God. I mean, in all honesty, right now, not what you want it to be, not what you hope it to be, but where are you really finding your joy today? Is it being committed to the ways of God? I didn't say it was an easy path, but it is a joyful path. So the first observation that we see is obedience within the community of faith and the joy that comes with it. The second observation that we see in verse 4 is God's ordained instruction for his people. God's ordained instruction for his people. Look at how the psalmist says this in verse 4. He says, he says, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. So there's a shift. So we went from they, their, those, to, to now you. So second, second person, you, and it's an emphatic you. So everything about that word you is driving us to who? The Lord himself, by God's divine design and grace. Guess what? We have the very word of God. You can't get through the first eight verses in Psalm 119 and come away with the very fact that God's word is, guess what? God's word, right? I mean, think about the language through verses 1 through 8. His law, his testimonies, his ways, his precepts, his statutes, his commandments, his righteous rules. These aren't man's ideas. This is, God's word is not man's ideas about who God is. God's word is God's revelation to us on who he is. And we must reckon with that. We must be committed to that. God's word is God's word. And why is that important? Because every single person on the planet for all time will have to give an account for what they truly believe about God's word. There's no way around it. Hebrews 4 says it like this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must, what? Give an account. God's word is alive. It exposes the depths and the darkness of our heart. It holds us accountable, and to that we will have to give an account. The word of God is that awesome. And here's the beauty of the word of God. It's given to God's people, right? It's given to us. The psalmist says that they're his precepts. That's what it says in verse four. And I love the word precepts because it's the idea of uh, step-by-step instructions, right? And as I began to think about that, I I thought about Legos, right? How many of y'all love to build Legos? If it wasn't for step-by-step instructions, the box wouldn't happen, right? Let me show you some instructions that are on uh, in a Lego box. That's, that's what you get. That's step one and two. How many of y'all are convinced you know what that is already? You, and you spend hours putting these things together. You know what the, the end goal of this particular instruction manual is? Let me show you the picture. The Titanic. Ah, yes, yes. 
contains over 9,000 pieces. It weighs almost 32 pounds, takes an average of 20 hours to complete, and costs roughly $700. So if that's what you want to do, I think it looks amazing. Uh, but it's not just the outside. You've got to look at the inside. The inside is pretty detailed as well. They have it in three sections. Uh, I did some research. Uh, not that we're going to buy it, but, uh, but we did some research. And here's the beauty. Uh, greater than instructions given by Lego to build a set, God has given us instructions on how to build a life, right? How amazing is that? Uh, P, uh, Paul, writing to uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy, says this in uh, chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. Uh, all scripture is breathed out by God, meaning he is the author. It is inspired, literally inspired by him. It is his very word. And the scripture says that it is profitable, meaning that it is sufficient and it has a purpose. And what is it profitable in doing? What is the purpose? It is a uh, purpose for teaching. That is, it leads us, it guides us, it instructs us on the path of truth. Uh, it's good for uh, reproof. That means it exposes error in our life. Uh, for correction, that means it restores us. And for training in righteousness, it's what builds our spiritual muscles in life. It's for what purpose, though? For, that the man of God may be what? Complete. Lacking in nothing. Equipped for every good work. And it's to God's precepts that we are commanded to keep them diligently. When it comes to God's word, we are to hold nothing back. In other words, the takeaway here is that we are to cherish God and his word. That's the point of diligently keeping his commandments, keeping his precepts. You know, what is your response to God's word today? I mean, you got to ask yourself that question every day, don't you? I mean, we're so prone to go to the, the stuff that's easy, right? The stuff that we're okay with. But have you realized that God's word meddles all the time? I mean, it is always digging, right? The question is, what is your response to God's word today? Do you truly cherish God and his word? Do you truly treasure him and his word? The Lord says in uh, Leviticus 18.4, uh, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. And the question is why? I am the Lord your God. And the context is amazing. Uh, because God's people are, are being influenced by the Egyptians and the Canaanites and all their false teaching and all their false idols. right? And the way that that is addressed is those things don't satisfy. Those things don't bring life. Don't treasure those things. Don't tre uh, cherish those things. Treasure the things of God. Why? Because I, I am your Lord. I am the one true God. You know, when uh, Moses was instructing uh, the people of God uh, on the importance of God's word, to cherish it, to cherish God and to cherish his word, uh, he, he instructs uh, the people of God with these words in Deuteronomy 6. It's called the Shema. In verses 4 through 9, uh, the scripture says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? So there's only one true God. Right? That's him. And then the scripture says, You shall love the Lord your God uh, with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your might. Right? Because there's one true God, love him supremely. Right? Then he goes on to say, in verse 6, And these words that I command you today shall be where? On your heart. So before they even become an acting, an action, a behavior, let them marinate, let them meditate, let them dig deep where, where your affections are, right? When your affections are towards the Lord, 
guess what? Your behavior follows, right? That's what the scripture is teaching us. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, put God's word where? Everywhere. Let it be your guide for all of your life, in your home, in your workplace, in your school, in your day-to-day life. Let the Word of God go before you. Let His Word be your anchor. Even in the secular environment that you work in and live in and go to school in, let God be, God's Word be your anchor. I mean, if, how many of y'all had the opportunity to read through uh, at least a portion or some of, or all of Psalm 119 over this past week? I mean, you didn't have to get very far to recognize there's a lot of repetition, right? Can I just encourage you with something? We need repetition, right? We need to be reminded over and over and over again of the same truths that are found in the gospel. Let the word of God be your anchor in life because the storms will come, Right? The influence of the world will come and there will be countless supply of false teaching to buy into. But there's only one anchor, right? So all those false teachings, they're out there. Towards the end of uh, 1 Timothy, Paul again is writing uh, to young Timothy and he gives this emotional charge concerning this very thing. He says in 1 Timothy 6, verses 20 and 21, he says, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the truth of God. He says, avoid at all cost. At all costs, don't buy into the false teaching for one moment. The irrelevant babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. In other words, don't buy into the trash, right? If we're going to be honest, don't buy into the trash. Why? What's the danger? He says in verse 21, for by professing it, by believing in that trash, some have swerved from the faith. They were led astray. And then I love how he closes it. Grace be with you. Oh man, do we not need the grace of God to stay faithful to the word of God? You know, one of the false teachings that comes from the world is this idea that God's word is, is out of date, right? It's old, right? That's, I mean, if you really listen to what's being communicated today, that's exactly what they're saying. It's old, it's out of date, right? And so the way that uh, people try to address that in the Christian circle, quote-unquote, is by re-terming given a terminology of progressive Christianity. Listen, if you really strip back the core tenets of progressive Christianity, it's not Christian at all. There's a couple of things that you can buy into, but if you really, really pull it back, it has denied the supremacy of Christ and the supremacy of God's word. So I agree that God's word is old, but I do not agree that it's out of date. I believe it is always true. There's a great song, a hymn called Ancient Words, and it says it like this. Holy words, long preserved for our walk in this world. They resound with God's own heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Words of life, words of hope, give us strength, help us cope. In this world where we roam, ancient words will guide us home. Ancient words ever true, changing me. And changing you. We have come with open hearts, O oh, let the ancient words impart. Holy words of our faith handed down to this age, 
came to us through sacrifice, O heed the faithful words of Christ. Do you believe? Do you cherish God and the word of God? So the observation that we see is God's ordained instruction for his people. It's his word, not ours. Cherish it, cherish him. And the third observation is a personal prayer of desire. Personal prayer of desire. Now we're going to get very, very personal. And that's where we find ourselves the rest of this chapter. This long, long chapter. The psalmist addresses himself. In other words, in light of these first two observations, this is his response in verse 5 of Psalm 119. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Do you hear the yearning desire of the psalmist? Oh, that if only my ways, if only my life would be steadfast, would be fixed, would be established, would be etched in keeping an ongoing commitment to the very word of God, your statutes. What an amazing prayer. Now, there's two things that could be happening here in the psalmist's life. We don't know. It's possible that the psalmist is looking at the community of faith before him. And he is observing the obedience that they have and the joy that comes with it. And he's recognizing, man, I want what they want, what they have. I mean, have you been there before? You get around the community of faith and you're not living for the Lord. And there's something inside of you that says, do you not desire that? And so it's possible that the psalmist is looking out and he says, man, I I desire to have what they have. Or it's possible that the psalmist is living in that way. And he is experiencing that joy. But his prayer is, don't let me get away from it. Anchor me in that way. Lord, I don't want to lower your standards in my life or miss out on the blessings in my life. He wants to stay where he is. He wants to continue to anchor his life there. And here's the beauty of this prayer. Verse 5 is an amazing prayer. And when that prayer is answered, there's amazing results. Look at verse 6. The scripture is going to teach us that there's no shame. No shame. The scripture says, Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. The word shame here talks about disgrace or dishonor. It refers to a failure to do or not do something that God's word has clearly instructed us. The scripture says that I have have fixed my eyes. My eyes are fixed. I am focused intently on the word of the Lord. In other words, what ultimately is going to influence me in my life is what God's word has to say. And the point isn't just to hear God's word, right? The point today, this morning, isn't just to hear the word of God. It's to put the word of God in action. James says it like this in James chapter 1, verse 22. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, The mirror here is the representation of the word of God. For he looks at himself and goes away and and at once he forgets. In other words, he neglects what he is like. But the one who looks, that is, who looks carefully into the perfect law, the law that was perfectly fulfilled in the perfect one, Jesus Christ, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And the, the key to that whole paragraph is in one word perseveres perseveres persevere means to remain or to abide in to hold fast to to cling to 
In other words, your ability and my ability to persevere in the things of God is not found in me, it's not found in you, it's found in him. And as we abide in him, guess what? We will preserve in the things of the Lord. Where shame is found in disobedience, we've experienced that, have you not? Maybe there's disobedience today or disobedience this past week. Wasn't there a level of shame there? A level of dishonor? Where shame is found in disobedience, freedom is found only in Christ. The fruit that comes from the answered prayer is not only no shame, but continuous praise, continuous praise. The psalmist writes in verse 7, I will praise you, that is, I will give thanks with an upright heart, a heart that is bent towards you. When I learn, and that is keep on learning your righteous rules. Again, there is a beautiful connection between obedience and joy. We can't get away from it. In fact, uh, Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says it like this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers, but his delight, his pleasure is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And why is it that we give continuous praise, continuous thanks for the word of God? Psalm 16 and verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I love Psalm, uh, Psalm 16 because it is talking about this future that's coming. And, and the psalmist, David, is saying, I, I trust, not only do I trust you with that future, but because of your ways and your will for my life, that path, I am trusting you even today. And so the fruit of shame, no shame, continuous praise, and thirdly, faithful obedience. Faithful obedience, verse 8, first part, it says, I, and that's a great, that's a strong I there, I will keep your statutes. There is a gospel determination to keep, and not just keep one time, but to keep keeping on, right? To keep your statutes, to keep your commandments. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a time in your life, as a follower of Christ, have you ever had a time in your life that you just said, today, I'm following the Lord. I mean, I am not doing that thing I just did the past 40 days. I'm not doing it anymore. Today, there's a resolute stand there. Anybody done that before? What happens that day? We laugh, but it's the reality, right? So yes, there is a gospel determination to stay resolute in the things of God, but that's not where the psalmist leaves us, right? He leaves us not with just faithful obedience, but he leaves us with humble dependence, humble dependence. Look at what he says, that last phrase in verse eight, do not utterly forsake me. The psalmist is committed to the Lord, but knows that his commitment to the Lord is only possible with the Lord's commitment to him. You know, David in his old age talks about this very thing. He, he, he understands the need of God's presence in his life. He says in Psalm 71 verse 9, he says, do not cast me off in the time of, uh, of old age, Forsake me not when my strength is spent. So David literally is in his old age, and he's recognizing that, that my strength has been depleted. I just have to tell you, I don't have to wait until I get to old age, whatever that number is, to realize that I have a 
deep, desperate need for the presence of God in my life. My power is nothing. My strength is nothing without the Lord. And so we have this promise, this this plea of do not utterly forsake me. And here's the beauty. Because of the finished work of Christ, he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Why? Because he has finished the necessary work to make it complete. Prophet Isaiah is speaking uh, in Psalm, or Isaiah chapter 50, and it's in this section of uh, just talking about the, the suffering servant who's going to come, Jesus Christ, our Messiah. And he says these words in Isaiah 50, verse 7, uh, but the Lord helps me, and all again, all of this is referring to Jesus. The, the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, I've not been put to shame. Therefore I set my face like a what? Like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. You know, when we look at the life of Christ, and that's what the psalmist is teaching us. It's pointing us to something greater than ourselves, right? And we know that that person is Jesus Christ himself. So the picture is Jesus is going to face every test, right? Everything that the world could throw at him. He's going to experience the agony of the cross. And everything that that is, everything that we studied, for seven weeks, all of that stuff, and yet he's fully committed to the will of the Father. Jesus fully trusted that the Father would provide everything that was needed to finish that work. And guess what? The cross and the empty tomb is proof that he did. He helped him in his time of need. And because that is true, you and I can live knowing that he will give us exactly what we need. We will not be forsaken. Therefore, we will humble, humble ourselves in dependency on him. What an amazing first eight verses. The psalmist's prayer, to love the Lord, to live for the Lord. The psalmist's understanding that God's word is simply what? God's word. Treasure it, treasure it, treasure it. And the psalmist's own testimony when he looks at the community of faith is a community of faith that is obeying God's word and a result of that there is joy, unspeakable joy. Where are you this morning? I mean, when you just process through these first eight verses, where are you? Are you part of the community of faith that truly, truly, truly desires to obey the word of the Lord? And as a result, there is amazing joy. Doesn't mean your circumstances are great. It doesn't mean you have everything figured out. But there is amazing joy. Do you truly see God's word for what it is? It is God's word. It is his instructions to us. It's not our understanding of God. It's God's true understanding of ourselves and our need for him. And do you recognize that there is a personal plea, a personal responsibility on your part and my part to ask the Lord to establish our ways in him. I love that word established because it's in the passive voice. It reminds us that we can't do it on our own. Only he can establish his ways in your life. My desire for every single person is that we would truly walk in the ways of the Lord. In 3 John verse 4, the scripture says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Is that your joy today? Is that your joy for the people of God today? 
So as we close in this time of response and song,